Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased to be joined this week by Claire Tomlin, very distinguished biographer and now memoirist with her new book, A Life of My Own. Claire, what was it that made you want to write a memoir? I'm certainly beginning to ask myself that. I think it was feeling that I was getting old and that I needed to sort of look at myself and sort of put my life in order in my own mind. And being used to writing biographies, I thought, well, I know roughly how you proceed, and began to gather all the letters and papers, and and I had a lot of material. For instance, my father, although he had quite mixed feelings about me, he actually preserved just about every letter I wrote to him from the age of 11, and he lived to be 98. When he died, my lovely stepmother sent me of course, they were emails in the later stages, so I had my own copies. So that was a, a big, a big cache of material. You say, which is quite curious, because you know, very early on in the, in the introduction, you say that you feel as if your life is one in which your course was sort of plotted almost against your will by the winds of the time and by the thing. And actually, it seems to me, and to many of the people who've read it and reviewed it, as a book about somebody who's quite determined to make her own life to swim against a sort of particular set of assumptions and expectations. Why did you see it that way? Well, I'm interested you say that. I certainly did feel that, for instance, the question of getting married too young, which I clearly did, married at 22, straight from, pretty well straight from university. But then when I looked at my generation, we were all doing that. We seemed to be just like fishes, sort of all doing the same thing as we swam along. And then in the 1960s, we all became rather sort of badly behaved and merry and committed adultery in a fairly light-hearted way, mostly. And again, it seemed that it wasn't that we'd made individual decisions to behave like this, it's that we were caught up in all that. And is, is that a sense you arrived at in the process of writing the book? I Did writing the book change the way you saw the course of your own life? To some extent it did, yes, yes. I saw other things. I saw that... My divorced parents, who you know, we, we were, they sort of battled over us in a sense, and that in a sense my father, our mother loved us, my sister and I, and, and was wonderful, was a wonderful mother to us. But my father was rich and in a powerful position to offer us a lot of things that our mother couldn't offer us. And we were sort of won over by him. Yes, there was a period in your teens when you were very against having anything to do with your father, wasn't there? Yes. Well, I was, I was very pleased to discover that I could defy him. I knew, he, I knew he had disliked me when I was a small child. He made no secret of that. But then he wanted to, to be able to have contact with me when he went off to America, to the United Nations. And I said I didn't want to go, and I had to go and talk to a judge about this. And the judge said most children would give their right arm to go to America and I said well I don't want to go but my mother's lawyer took me aside afterwards and said you must stay in touch with your father but anyhow it was the feeling that I could defy my father that I could actually even when I was only 12 years old say I'm not going to do this just because my father says I am to do it that was important to me. There's another moment in the book where you you were able to kind of take control and it's after the death of your first husband you have this moment where you say, you thought, and you thought in capital letters in the book, now, 
And you were then, what would that have been, in your 40, late 30s? 40, 40, 40, 40, just 40, 40 yes. Yeah. I was 40. Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, his death was terrible, and it was terrible for the children, and it, it was to his mother and father and my, we all, everybody loved Nick. But I did have that feeling that somehow I was free now to construct my own pattern of life. And I've talked to a lot of other women about this, and they've come and talked to me. And I can't tell you how often I've been told the same thing. However much they grieve as widows, they had this sense of somehow being liberated. I mean, this is a book which, written by somebody else, could look in parts like what now gets called the misery memoir. You know, you had a, you know, what, what we now call a marriage with an adulterous husband who was physically violent towards you. You know, then you were widowed. But you write the book with a sort of aggressive refusal of self-pity. Did you feel you were victimised? I mean, when you... No, I did not. I, I perhaps began to feel victimised and I had help from a counsellor through the Tavistock Clinic. Mrs Seligman, she's no longer alive. And she really helped me to see that I did not have to be a victim, that I did not have to repeat the pattern of my mother's unhappy marriage and that I could actually be myself and live my life. And in fact, she did it so well that while Nick was still alive, he said something has, something has changed in you, and I think it had. So I'm very, very grateful for that. And do you see that first marriage as having been... I mean, obviously it's given you your children and, you know, it's shaped an awful lot of what you've done, but you talk again in the introduction about how you felt you found your vocation. You know, this writing of biographies, the thing that you love doing and do so well, kind of late in life, later than you might otherwise. Do you, does a bit of you think, if I hadn't, got married in my early 20s, I would have been doing this for much longer. No, I don't think that, really. I probably wasn't ready to start writing biographies. I don't know why. I can't, I can't unravel my life to that extent. I mean, I do feel, I, I must say, that in many respects I've had an extremely fortunate life, that I've lived among interesting people, been given lovely jobs to do, that I got to Cambridge when, at a time when less than... 3% of people in England went to universities at all. And I've always had enough money since I, we were very poor with my mother as children, but we never even felt poor then because my mother was an artist and she thought what mattered was music and literature and, and friendship and conversation. And so we didn't feel that we were underprivileged. But I have had, in some ways, an, an easy ride physically financially. No, you say you were lucky in the jobs you were given, but you say, actually, you started out, you wanted to be a poet. I wrote poetry from the age of seven, I suppose, until the age of 21, and I used to write, literally, I must have written hundreds of sonnets, and I wrote long narrative poems, and I wrote poetry of all kinds. And I have to say, it was probably the thing I've most enjoyed doing in my life. When something comes to you, and then you work on it, and you try to form it into a poem... I think I wrote three or four reasonably good poems, but I was not a true poet because I did not have an individual voice, and I decided that at the end of my time at Cambridge. And curiously, my tutor, Dorothea Crook, her next pupil was Sylvia Plath. So <laughs> I think I made the right decision because here was a real poet coming up. With an absolutely individual voice. Gosh, did you know Plath? No, I didn't. Michael did. He was up at Cambridge a bit after Is me. Is your husband Michael Yes, my, from no. Michael Crane. Yes, because he did military service. So we, did, we didn't overlap at Cambridge. 
And he actually commissioned a poem, printed one of her poems, I think, when he was editing Grant, I suppose. Goodness. But you, you packed in poetry, and, I mean, do you not feel the sort of itch to do that, even privately? Well, I suppose over the years I've written one or two verses... And maybe I should have... You have to... If you're a poet, you have to work at poetry all the time. I so much admire Alice Oswald, for instance. You know, people who really do work away at their poetry. You can't sort of sit around and... Clive James, yes. whom you interviewed recently. Wonderful writing poetry beyond his death date. Yes, <laughs> and, and more and more of it. Yes, yes, and it's so good. But you sort of started in... In literary journalism, after a brief period, I mean, you know, you had young children, you were reading for publishers. Yes. Actually, can it be right that you, you basically brought us to Kill a Mockingbird? You mentioned in the book that <laughs> well, it's well, a favourable I did, I did read it and I said I thought it would probably be very popular. <laughs> and I proved right. Yes. So your judgment, your yes. judgment was spot on to start with. Yes, and I began then doing odd review. I began reviewing children's books because Ronald Bryden, who was a friend from Cambridge and was my lodger, was working at the Spectator here. And uh, what do you get offered if you're a young woman? Children's books. So my children had a wonderful time, and that was very nice. And then slowly I began to review for TLS and Terry Kilmartin. Terry Kilmartin is one of the men I miss most. Uh, he was a wonderful literary editor, and he was a, a marvellous man because he was extremely well-read and hard-working, but he had a lightness of spirit. And as a friend, you could he, he taught me a lot about being a literary editor. But he also laughed at me when I behaved in stupid ways in life and never gave offence. I, I really loved Terry. I think all his friends did. He was a very important figure. Through the book, there's also a thread of sense of encountering the kind of sexism of the age. I mean, you're being put up for one job and you have this thing where the James Mickey, the poet, <laughs> comes in and puts a folded piece of paper on the desk and this gets you the job because you've got a 7 out of 10 for looks. Did you ever forgive Mickey for that? Do you know, it didn't offend me at all. I just thought it was funny. I mean, it probably offends me more now. I realise now I should have been offended. But, you know, we, we became great friends. I'll tell you a story that's not in the book, which shows the sort of thing that happened, though, to women. I was offered a job by someone who shall be nameless, rather a good job. And when I'd, when I'd been in it for, for a while, he said, I, I want to take you out for lunch, Claire. And I said, oh, well, you know, we'll go out and have lunch here. We'll go to Soho. And off we walked to so towards Soho. When we got to Soho, he led me into a strip club, something I didn't even know, really know existed, and sat down among a lot of men in Macintoshes, expecting me to sit down next to him. So I just got up and walked out. That was quite a startling thing, isn't it? It's not a usual place for literary lunch. <laughs> I don't think I was going to get any lunch. <laughs> Swiss. And I mean, it must also... There's a sort of moment in the book where... Your then-husband, Nicholas Tomlin, has worked as a gossip columnist, he does not work as a foreign correspondent, and you are the literary journalist at this point, and he, having had no experience in this at all, becomes the literary editor of the New Statesman. Well, he was offered the job by Paul Johnson. Paul and Carl Miller, who was the literary editor, who was a great friend from Cambridge, had fallen out. And Paul thought that Carl's pages were too highbrow, too difficult and were off-putting to readers. And he wanted to bring in someone whom he thought would have a popular touch. And fair enough. And I couldn't understand why Nick wanted to do it. It seemed so outside his area of interest and skill. But he accepted it. I suppose he couldn't resist the challenge. And he said, come along, we'll go in. We went into through the office of the New States and 
empty. And we went into the literary department on the second floor, which I came to know well later. And there were these great piles of books everywhere. And I saw visibly Nick quailing from the mountains of books. And I thought, oh, what heaven. It was quite funny. Yes, I mean, it was essentially your job. I mean, it became your job it later. It became my job later, yes. To some, someone of my generation, I sort of read this, and it seems like there's this sort of absolute golden age of literary journalism where, you know, you had sort of most famously Martin Amos, but, you know, Craig Rain and James Fenton and Julian Barnes knocking around the offices of the New Statesman, you know, Clive James was there, you had... Um, Wonderful you know, historians writing for us, yes. So and Gloucester Crescent also, where you were Gloucester. living. Yes. <laughs> this is now this kind of storied little utopia of... It was wonderful. It was, it was, it was great fun. I mean, a lot of people have talked about this being a misery memoir, but my friend Victoria Glendinning sent me a long email and she ended up saying, didn't we have fun? And I thought, good, good, Vicky, yes, quite right, we did have fun, yes. I used to joke that Gloucester Crescent at three in the morning, the sound of... People switching on their cars and everyone, everyone moving around from one place to another in the middle of the night was characteristic noise. We should talk a little bit about your biographies. You, yes, your we first have been subject. very frivolous, haven't we? We have been very frivolous. Context. Well, it's, you know, it's a book about your life, so I think we're entitled to talk about your life, though, as you said earlier on. You know, having written all about myself, I now feel rather exposed. <laughs> yes. Mary Wollstonecraft, your first book, what drew you to her? Well, I happened to, browsing in the London Library, I happened to find a volume of, of her letters, and I hadn't known about her. I think I was interested in it through reading about Byron, somehow there was a connection. And I thought they were extraordinary. I was on maternity leave from the Statesman, and uh, Crossman was the editor, and he'd said, you must write pieces while you're away on your maternity leave. So I wrote a page about Mary Wollstonecraft, which appeared in The Statesman, and I then got letters from publishers and agents saying, write a book about her. And my first response was to say, well, there is already, a, there was an American biography of one or two. But anyhow, that's how it led to my deciding I would try to write about her. And as soon as I started researching, I realised this is what I really enjoyed more than anything else. And I got completely obsessed and absorbed. And we're going into the British Library to work in the reading room. And she'd worked on a magazine, the Analytical Review. And, of course, you had to ask for single volumes. And they said to me, oh, look, you can go and work in the stacks. And I thought that was an extraordinary moment just to be allowed to go in with my notebook and sit surrounded by books. And I had to go get over to Paris to because she'd been in Paris during the revolution and so I wanted to research about French feminists during the revolution. Everything, everything was exciting. What, yes. is the, what is the particular pleasure of writing biography? Is it kind of inhabiting somebody else's life? It's not just that, it's, it's, it's doing the history and finding the context. Because biography, you have to do every sort of different discipline you know you have to look into their medical history you look in the art art history the pictures of them or you look into politics you look into well you have to follow them geographically it's just extremely absorbing work and you have I mean I do remember with Wollstonecraft there was one period of her life when I couldn't find anything about two years when I couldn't find track down anything I was sat at my typewriter in those days for two weeks thinking how am I going to get on with this book I've got nothing until, of course, at the end of two weeks, I thought, well, I just have to jump over those two years and get on. Um, you're a great one for scoops as well. I mean, I think you found the 
Dickens's secret daughter to deal with. Was it the secret daughter or the Nellie Turnan? Turnan. Yes, well, the, well, I didn't... No, no, I didn't find any proof. I went looking for proof. I never found any proof. I found Mary's... You found Mary's Mary's, child, yeah. Mary's daughter, Fanny, who was born in Le Havre, and no one had ever... They didn't have a birth certificate for her. And Richard Cobb, the historian, said to me, well, Le Havre was flattened in, in the Second World War, but it's, it's always worth writing to archives in France. So I did, and two weeks later I got a brown envelope and there was a photocopy of Fanny Imlay's birth certificate in the French calendar, of the, in the revolutionary calendar in Floréal, not in, not in the 24th of May, but in Floréal she was born. And that, I must say, that was just stunning to me. It felt like crying to think that child's... And it did actually say her parents were married because Gilbert Imlay, this tedious American who was the fa- her father, obviously felt obliged to say he was married to Mary Rossingroft, though they had agreed not to marry. Do you have to like your subjects? Well, I think I do. I mean, people write wonderful biographies of monsters, of Stalin and, and Hitler, big-scale monsters. But I, I think I would find it difficult to write about somebody I didn't really warm to. Have you ever embarked on one and found yes, some, I, yes, something I did. sour on somebody? It, yes, I, I did think of writing about a writer, and I, I met his grand. I went to meet his granddaughter in France. She was living an old, very elderly lady, and we had long talk. And finally, she said to me, "I didn't really like my grandfather. <laughs> I didn't really like him." And I just decided I wasn't going to go on with it. It was very embarrassing because people had given me letters and things. Who was, who was that? Well, it was William Hale White who wrote under the name of Mark Rutherford, wrote some very good novels. He, he'd known George Eliot slightly. With the Wollstonecraft book was a big success. And then I think, did you win the Whitbread for that one? Yes, they made a first book prize, I think, for me. And then I wrote a short book about Shelley, which was sort of obvious, son-in-law, yeah. as it were, Wollstonecraft. And then I had this long gap. And why, why the long gap? Because I'd very foolishly given up my job thinking I could earn my living as a writer. I found I couldn't earn my living as a writer. People think you can... It's very difficult to earn your living as a writer. Getting harder every year. Yes, absolutely. So I, I had to get a job again. And I actually applied to the Times. I heard they were looking for a literary editor and I went for an interview there. And they, I was telephoned and they said, well, we don't want you on the Times, but would you come and be literary editor of the Sunday Times? <laughs> which, was, which was pretty... This was Harry Evans, who was very, very good to me, keeping an eye on things so, for me. Also, arguably, offering you the more prestigious job. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So that was... But, of course, the paper had been closed for a year with the dispute with the printers, so it was quite tough going in there. I didn't really have any secretarial help for a long time. So I joked about this in the book. I think people used to telephone... And hearing a, a woman's voice, they assumed I was the secretary. But in fact, I pretty well was the secretary as well as the literary editor for quite a long time. But it, was, it wasn't such fun as The New Statesman. The New Statesman was terrific fun because you could really do anything you liked and you, you could find new people and try them out. As the Sunday Times, there was a certain feeling that you, know, you, you had to have, particularly when Andrew Neil became editor, they thought you had to have famous names. And I used to say to him, but we make names famous at the Sunday Times. You have to balance these things. Actually, one, one question occurred on your biographical subjects before I forget. You mentioned earlier George Eliot as somebody you admire. Did you ever think of doing Eliot, I wondered, or did you think Jenny Uglow's done her? So Jenny Uglow had done Mrs Gaskell. Didn't she also do? She also did George Eliot. Well, I think only, if, uh, only a short book. Yes, of course I thought about doing George Eliot. I mean, everybody wants to write about George Eliot. I did want to do Mrs Gaskell, but Jenny Uglow wrote a terrific book about her and I, I so much admire her and, and it, there is a, there is a problem you know you, you don't want to sort of 
upset friends by jumping on their subject. But it's, you have to sort of work it out. Sometimes you do it all the same. I mean, I did write about Dickens. Practically everybody's written about Dickens, so perhaps that doesn't matter. Yes, but do you, do you feel yourself as being in a kind of, not quite a gang, but do you see you have kind of colleagues who are in the same Yes, territory? we know each other. Richard Holmes, Holmes great friend. Tora Glendinning is a great friend. Uh, Jenny Uglow is a friend. Uh, Hilary Sperling is a... <laughs> we, we, are, we are a group. We don't see each other very often physically. We are aware of each other and we encourage each other. Some younger biographers like Mark Bostridge, I mean, he talks to me about his plans. and It's very comforting. And I don't actually, I'm not a club, I'm not someone who belongs to clubs. And I know now that increasingly there are biographers' clubs, but I find that a bit more than I can deal with. And do, I mean, do you ever have that thing of going, oh, I want to do X, but Y is about to do them, or sort of racing for a subject? I don't think that's actually mm. happened. I mean, almost always when you've settled to do one, you hear of someone else doing it. And you get terrified. But I don't think... I think in a way, when Peter Aykroyd's Dickens came out, my book on Ternan came out. And so they were sort of, in a sense, set against each other. But that, that was pure chance. Back into the sort of... Life, sort of there's a kind of second act to your love life, which is your long marriage to Michael Frayne. It's a much happier partnership, but you knew each other for a long time before that. I'm interested. We were I mean, friends. We were friends. We were very, very good friends for years. It's a very good basis for falling in love and getting married. Actually, I think. I mean, I recommend it. We didn't marry till we were sixty. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, he does. I mean, there's a line in the book that seems to suggest that Michael Frayne actually was responsible for when you went into labour with your fifth child. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was way. laughing. That's right. I was laughing with Tom. I think yes. I was laughing, and I felt some. Um, you one of his, one of his, one of his plays. plays. I took my mother, and I, I think yes, Nick was in America promoting his wonderful book on Donald Crowhurst, and I took my mother and my daughter Joe. Oh goodness, one of Michael's plays. One, I think he's at the first play, and we laughed and laughed and went home, and at two in the morning, I realised that something was <laughs> happening. I rang the hospital, and they said you must come in in a taxi. So I woke up my mother and told her, yes, yes, it was all Michael's fault. <laughs> and is, I mean, people are always sort of fascinated by literary partnerships. Is there something sort of implicitly rivalrous, do you find, or is it supportive? I mean, do you read each other? or? Well, you... we show each other when we're finished. We don't show as we go along. I mean, I tend to chatter about mine as I go along, but Michael doesn't. He's not a chatterer. <laughs> but when we're finished, we show. And we try, we try to be honest and give an honest opinion so that uh, Michael is a very, very good... He has got a very good editorial eye, and I'm, I'm OK, too. And we write such different well, you things. Cut, you cut the magus you mentioned in this book, which is <laughs> well, wonderful. It's your only Tom, career that you presented this John Fowles manuscript. Yes, and you extraordinary, wasn't it? Eviscerated. Yes, yes, yes it was very funny, that. And he, we understand, we understand the panic and depression that afflicts writers because we both, I suppose, suffer from those panics and periods of depression and periods of elation too. I must say it's um, we, we do work in very, very different ways. And Michael has a huge body of work. I mean, he is he's, he's a marvellous journalist, he's a marvellous novelist, he's a playwright. You know, he's, he, can, he can do everything. And I have a very limited field. But I'm, I think, you know, I'm right to stay within... I did write one play, 
tiny play about Catherine Mansfield and Ida, which was put on, and it was a thrilling experience. I don't think I write about it in the book. No, you don't no, mention it. You no. did mention your first book being a translation of an obscure French philosopher, I think it was. Oh, yes, it? yes, Maurice Hardwick. Well, that was just earning money doing translating. But it was lovely having a play put on, because you see what actors give. He, actors are the most generous people in the world. They give themselves absolutely to the words you've written for them. And I went, once it was put on in Southampton, I went down once on my own, it ran for a few weeks, and I went into theatre, and the theatre was full. And I thought, I've filled a theatre. Then I thought, no, wait a minute, I haven't filled a theatre. It's the actors and Catherine Mansfield and the director, Patrick Sanford, my designer, Tanya McCullen, yes. It was a great experience, and I... In some sense, I would have liked to have gone on trying to write plays, and then I thought, it's ridiculous. You can't have two playwrights in the family. You've got one, somebody who writes Copenhagen and noises off. You know, it's too much competition. <laughs> you keep, to your, keep to your beat. Is there anyone who you haven't written about who you really long to or wish you had? Is there one that got away? I, I did want to write A Life of Mrs Thatcher, as a matter of fact. God, well, that's not at all what I expected you to say. Well, I just thought, think she's so interesting. She's not, she's not my favourite politician, and I've been reading Charles Moore. Her life is deeply fascinating. And when I was a child, I wanted to be the first woman prime minister. And I can't tell you how many other women I've talked to of my sort of generation who had that same thought, that they wanted to become the first. And she did it. And it's a really, really interesting life, extraordinary life, I think, in Every respect. Yes, maybe a literary biographer is what she needs. <laughs> well, no, I think she. I think Charles Moore was terrific, wonderful. But had, if someone had let me 20, 30 years ago, but perhaps that's too long ago. No, it isn't. Start on it. I would have very. I would have been very, very interested to write about her because well, it would have been quite different from anything else I'd done. Well, it goes in Borges's library of unwritten books somewhere. <laughs> anyway, Claire Tomlin, thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you. Why wait for tomorrow's papers? The best analysis of the day's news is already on Coffee House. To subscribe to the Evening Blend email in order to receive the best of The Spectator each day, just head to spectator.co.uk forward slash blend.